You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. On memory. Imagine a desk covered with papers. That is everything you are thinking about. Now imagine a stack of file drawers behind it. That is everything you know. The trick is to keep the desk and the file drawers as close to one another as possible and the papers stacked neatly. Unwin pedaled north along the dripping, shadowed expanse of City Park. There were fewer cars on the street now, but twice he had to ride up onto the sidewalk to pass horse-drawn carriages, and a peanut vendor swore at him as he swerved too close to his umbrella-topped stand. By the time Unwin arrived at the Municipal Museum, his socks were completely soaked again. He hopped off his bicycle and chained it to a lamppost, stepping away just in time to avoid the spray of filthy water raised by the tires of a passing bus. The fountains to either side of the museum entrance were shut off, but rainwater had overflowed the reservoirs and was pouring across the sidewalk to the gutter. The place had a cursed and weary look about it, built, Unwin imagined, not to welcome visitors, but to keep secrets hidden from them. He fought the urge to turn around and go home. With every step he took, the report he would have to write explaining his actions grew in size. But if he were ever going to get his old job back, he would have to find Savart, and this was where Savart had gone. Unwin angled his umbrella against a fierce damp wind, climbed the broad steps, and passed alone through the revolving doors of the museum. Jedediah Berry's short stories have appeared in Best New American Voices and Best American Fantasy. He works as assistant editor of Small Beer Press. His first novel is The Manual of Detection. Thank you for joining me, Jedediah. Thank you. Jed, let's talk a little bit about the structure of this book. It's very interesting. It's presented as the fictional version of the non-fictional, metafictional creation. <laughs> uh, how did you create just the, the format of, of this book? Well, it came about in stages. When I started the book, I really did not know what I was doing. I didn't even really know mystery fiction terribly well. And... As a result of that, while I was working on the first chapter, I think out of a a sort of terror, I had another character give my main character a book called The Manual of Detection. And this was supposed to be his guide to solving the mysteries that he is presented with over the course of the story. Once I had that book in place, I began writing parts of it. And so I had all of these little bits and pieces uh, of advice for the the modern detective. And... I didn't know where to put them at first, but then eventually I saw that they would work nicely as uh, chapter headings. And so each chapter in the novel is structured around one of the ideas presented in a chapter of the uh, fictional nonfiction book, and it proceeds accordingly. This is a really interesting uh, mystery. One of the things I, I liked about this was the setting because it seems immediately familiar. It seems completely, it's rendered with a great realism, yet it is completely fantastic. Tell us about creating an imaginary city in which to set a hard-boiled detective tale. This was a lot of fun. I certainly borrowed from several real cities in, in making the one that I wanted um, It's closest to a New York City, uh, perhaps of the 1940s. And I I lived in New York for several years, and you'll see bits and pieces of familiar uh, landmarks in the book. Grand Central Terminal is is there, and uh, the the 
Museum of Natural History is there. But there are things that I wanted in my city which are which are not in 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 any real cities that I know of. I, I needed a carnival that came to town many years ago and has never left. Uh, I, I I needed. Um, a number of, of strange and hidden locations. So I decided to leave the city unnamed and uh, just let it build um, according to how I needed the story to go. Uh, and, I, and I purposefully left it unnamed, really, because I, I wanted it to work the way a setting of a fairy tale or a fable works, where it hopefully feels familiar, but it's um, at the same time no place and, and every place. Uh, and that way, it, it, it hopefully uh, invites the reader to to do a good deal of the imagining of, of of the world at the same time that I'm that I'm trying to describe it. One of the things I, I liked about this is the 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 timelessness of it. it. It has a feel a bit of a feel of current day, yet we find horse-drawn carriages. And I'm wondering if you could talk about you know the 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 setting in terms of, of time and how you create this, uh, what I would call a a timeless, hard-boiled detective feeling. Hmm. Well, I took the idea of the hard-boiled detective novel and tried to push it as far as I could. Uh, One of the questions I would often ask is, you know, if, if we were all always living in the world of one of those novels, what would be going on around us? Uh, and and so this is this is supposed to be the city in a way in which all of those mysteries take place, and in, in, in where the, where it's always raining, where uh, the, the detectives are always wearing their their fedoras and trench coats, and mysteries are always afoot. Uh, so it's 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 supposed to be a little bit over the top. Uh, it's it's kind of a hyper realized uh, mystery city, and the people there go about their day with a, with a kind of weariness because they, they, they know that the, you know, the evil magician uh, who is kind of the arch nemesis of the story is always uh, likely to strike again someday. And, and they, they, the, their newspapers are, are mystery stories. Let's talk about the, the main character here. His name is Charles Unwin. Now it took me a little while to, to suss that <laughs> if you're an unwinner. Yes. I yes I, that was a name I was hanging on to for a while, uh, and finally found the right character to attach it to. Uh, Unwin he 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 is unwinning. He's he is a humble file clerk. He's lived his life anonymously, uh, although he is responsible for the files of perhaps the most famous man in the city, the the great detective Travis T. Savart. And so he's he's really his detective shadow. He's he's at once a kind of Dr. Watson, but he's also um, a completely invisible presence until the start of the book when he when he finds himself unexpectedly promoted. Uh, the little bit of the extra game that goes with his name is that not only is he unwinning, but he has the potential to to unwin, that is to say, to foil the, the plans of his enemies uh, because he is so unassuming and he is he is a bumbling file clerk. Uh, and you know, and am- as an amateur detective, he really doesn't know what he's doing, and that really throws his adversaries off their guard. Now let's hear a reading by Jedediah Berry from his book, The Manual of Detection. In this scene, Unwin is going to find his supervisor, uh, who he has never met, to see if he can undo the matter of his promotion. We're going to hear another reading by Jedediah Berry from his novel, The Manual of Detection. He knocked harder and the door swung inward. 
The room was dark, but in the column of light from the hall, Unwin saw a broad maroon rug, shelves of thick books with blue and brown spines, a pair of cushioned chairs angled toward a desk at the back. To one side was a great dark globe, and before the window loomed a bald and massive globe-like head. On the desk, a telephone, a typewriter, and a lamp unlit. Mr. Lamech, Unwin said again, crossing the threshold. I am sorry to have to bother you, sir. It's Charles Unwin, clerk, floor 14. I've come about the matter of the promotion. I believe there may have been some kind of error. Lamech said nothing. Maybe he did not wish to speak with the door open. Unwin closed it and approached. As his eyes adjusted, he began to discern a heavy-featured face, shoulders wide as the wide-backed chair, big, unmoving hands folded over the desk. Not your error, of course, Unwin amended. Probably a transcriptionist's typo or a bad connection on one of the older lines. You know how things get when it rains, sir. Fits of static, the occasional disconnect? Lamech regarded him wordlessly. And it has been raining on and off for days now. Fourteen days, in fact. More rain than we've had in quite some time. Unwin stood before the desk. It's a matter of poor drainage, sir. Bound to interfere with the lines. He saw that Lamech's telephone was in fact unplugged, the cord left dangling over the edge of the desk. The watcher said nothing. The only sound was the rain against the window, the cause, Unwin supposed, for all his talk about the weather. Unless you protest, Unwin hazarded, I'll just switch on your desk lamp for you. That way I can show you some identification, which I'm sure you want to see before bothering with any of this. Wouldn't want to waste your time, and you can't trust anyone these days, isn't that right? He tugged the cord. The lamp, identical to the one on Unwin's own desk twenty-two floors below, made a puddle of pale green light over the desktop, over Unwin's outstretched hand, over the seated man's gray crisscrossed fingers, and over his heavy gray face, from which a pair of bloated, red-flooded eyes glared out at nothing. Corpses were nothing new to Unwin. Hundreds of them populated the reports entrusted to his care over the years, reports in which no detail was spared. People poisoned, shot, gutted, hanged, sliced to ribbons by industrial machinery, crushed between slabs of cement, clobbered with skillets, defenestrated, eviscerated, burned or buried alive, held underwater for lengthy intervals, thrown downstairs, or simply kicked and pummeled out of being. The minutiae surrounding such incidents were daily fare, so to speak, to a clerk of the 14th floor. Whole indices, in fact, were organized according to cause of death, and Unwin himself had from time to time contributed new headings and subheadings when an innovative murder necessitated an addition or expansion. Strangulation, unattended boa snake, was one of his, as was Muffin's poisonous berry. A man so thoroughly versed in the varieties of dispatchment might then regard with unusual ease the result of an actual murder, in this case a man whose neck had been bruised by strangulatory measures, tongue emitted as a result of smotheration, eyes bulged almost clear of the skull, result of the same. But Unwin yanked his hand from the light and took several steps backward, tripped over the edge of the rug, and fell into one of the thickly cushioned chairs, the softness of which did nothing to diminish his revulsion. When we meet him at the beginning, he's not the most sympathetic figure in the world, and, and he, in many ways he stays rather unsympathetic, but at first he seems like he's a little bit of a stalker. Mm. Yes. He, he's kind of uh, haplessly and unwittingly filling that role. He he's, he's, has spotted this woman um, in the uh, central terminal, in, in, in the train terminal in the city, and he goes to watch her every day. Uh, because she's always waiting at the station for someone to arrive, and that person never comes, and so he he's really kind of caught in in a in a kind of stasis there, and 
it's true. He's 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 not the most sympathetic character. He's he's really uh, at a dead end in his life and his existence, and it's it's as though he's barely conscious of this himself. As you uh, created, you know, his voice and, and his perspective, uh, I'm wondering if you could talk about taking that voice and that those eyes on a walk through this city that you've created. Um, did you uh, map out, do you have a map, uh, an actual map of the city, or did you just map it out in prose as you, as you created it? At one point, I did make a very rough sketch. I needed a basic sense of the geography. But I, I wanted the city to be a little flexible in, in its layout. Uh, it's, it's, you know, the book is informed by ideas of dreams and dreaming, and the city itself is, is meant metaphorically as, as much as, as it's meant to be a, a real place. And so, but, but this, this, of course, is a terrifying for Mr. Unwin, who is very particular. He is uh, exacting. He, he pays uh, attention to the details. And in his work at, at the agency, uh, he is responsible for making sure everything is in order. And he brings that to his, his daily existence. So normally, he, he is moving back and forth the seven blocks between his apartment and, and the agency offices, and he doesn't really go anywhere else. But when he is kind of thrust into the the greater region of the city. He finds himself very much out of his depth in a world that he does not understand, and he has to adapt very quickly in order to survive. Jed, tell us uh, about some of the specific places you created. There, are, one of my favorite specific places is the museum, which ties also to these wonderful mysteries we allude to and get learn more and more about as the book as the delve into the book the this this really came about from walking around uh, not only the the Museum of Natural History but also the the Metropolitan Museum of Art and in a way I, I combined those two museums to make the the municipal museum which appears in this book it is a, a place of, of human history and in in all of its uh, its its bloody unfortunate events and you know that there there is a, a, a mystery at the heart of the book, uh, a kind of unsolved or, or rather incorrectly solved mystery, which is there in the museum. It's the, the oldest murdered man who is a, a mummy who was discovered in a, a, a bog years ago and put on display there and then was eventually stolen by uh, the carnival magician Enoch Hoffman. Uh, Detective Travis Savart uh, in years ago, rescued the mummy and brought it back to the museum. But when Unwin himself goes there in the book, he he discovers that things are not exactly as they seem, and solving and and well, running into this dilemma is part of what compels him to go deeper into his his own case because he realizes that something has gone wrong in the the mysteries that he's been part of all his life and so he has to he has to sort this out really do a kind of fact checking and, and correction as he sees it oh, this is a really interesting take too on on the mystery genre because your your main character ha- has finds himself promoted to be a detective which would seem to be something that would be good, but he's repulsed by the idea. Oh, it's it's terrible for him. He wants nothing more than to be back at his desk, uh, filing reports, and you know, taking care of those those everyday tasks. Unwin is someone who has become very 
comfortable in his existence. And the the mysteries of the world are things that have reached him only through uh, the written word. They've come to him in, in these reports, and, and he really doesn't want to uh, experience them. And in fact, he's always lived with a, a level of remove from them. It's almost as though he never actually thought they were real until he is promoted. And so the first thing he does is to try to get himself unpromoted. To And, and un- unfortunately for him, that only drags him further into uh, the mystery that needs solving. Uh, and this is because uh, when he does this, he, he works at something called the agency. And, and one of the things I love is that uh, he describes it as being better to seen, better seen from within than from the outside. Right. It's a bureaucratic organization. And when I conceived of it, I, I wanted it to have a presence beyond its purpose. It's a detective agency modeled a little bit after the, the Pinkerton detective agency. But it's also has it also has an interest that, that goes beyond solving mysteries. There is uh, a, a degree of uh, that. Well, there are there are secrets that the agency itself is guarding, uh, without giving away too much. And it, in it, as as with the sort of giant bureaucracies of an Orwell novel or of a of a Kafka book. Uh, its powers are dangerous. And so Unwin, having worked from within it for a long time, has been safe from it. But when he is promoted and when he discovers that things are more complicated than they seem, he becomes subject to its its powers. And the agency is something that he himself must navigate in new ways once, once he finds himself a detective rather than a clerk. We're going to hear another reading by Jedediah Berry, from his novel, The Manual of Detection. Nothing in the index seemed entirely appropriate to his situation, except perhaps one entry, Mystery, First Tidings of. He turned to the corresponding page and began to read. The inexperienced agent, when presented with a few promising leads, will likely feel the urge to follow them as directly as possible. But a mystery is a dark room, and anything could be waiting inside. At this stage of the case, your enemies know more than you know. That is what makes them your enemies. Therefore, it is paramount that you proceed slantwise, especially when beginning your work. To do anything else is to turn your pockets inside out, light a lamp over your head, and paste a target on your shirt front. The iciness that had settled in Unwin's wet socks climbed up his legs and began melting into his stomach. How many blunders had he already committed? He read the next few pages quickly, then skimmed the beginnings of those chapters that dealt with the foundations of the investigative process. Every paragraph of the Manual of Detection read like an admonishment tailored specifically for him. He should have developed an alternate identity, come in disguise or through a back door, planned an escape route. Certainly, he should have remained armed. In one case file after another, he had seen these techniques used, but detectives employed them without any apparent forethought. Was Savart really so deliberate? Everything he did, whether throwing someone off his trail or throwing a punch, he did as though the possibility had only just occurred to him. Unwin closed the book and set it on the table, set his hands on top of it, and took a few deep breaths. The man with the blonde beard was working quickly now. Unwin saw the phrase, habits suggesting a dull but potentially dangerous personality, empty or clouded over, and then, just as he typed it, if he is in contact with the absentee agent, he does not know it. 
as he goes out on his, you know, investigations, we, we meet his uh, sidekick, the delightfully named Emily Doppel. Tell yes. us a little bit about creating this character. Uh, she really became one of my favorite characters over the course of, of writing this book. And I, I, she didn't begin that way. In fact, in the beginning, he had two assistants. And finally, I, I combined them into one, and, and her name was Emily. And she she is an odd woman. When he first finds her, she is asleep in in their office. Uh, she she has uh, a kind of uh, sleeping sickness where she will um, unexpectedly drift off from time to time. And she is very serious about detective work, much more serious than he is. And so this makes him terribly nervous because he has a lot to live up to once he discovers he has an assistant who is 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 really... Uh, you know, attached to this work. And that to him feels kind of dangerous because she see, it seems as though she's possibly there to observe him as much as she is there to help him. Uh, but Emily, in, I think in some ways, becomes a, a, a real, the real heart of the book. She, is, uh, she, she, she has goals that go beyond Unwin's, and uh, her presence there really compels him to 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 do what he would not have done otherwise, uh, and she ha- she she rescues him when he needs rescuing, and uh, but she, but she is also uh, has an agenda of her own, which becomes apparent over time. Now you mentioned that uh, she has a, a sleeping sickness, but she's not the only one, and in fact, sleep and dreams and memories weave throughout this book and and form a backdrop that becomes more and more important and comes into the foreground. Could you talk about um, the metaphysical background uh, of this novel? And it's interesting to to think of a hard-boiled detective novel with such a, a, as I say, a metaphysical uh, backdrop. Right. Dreams are something that, that interest me in general, uh, I, I I think of them as, uh, in part, uh, uh, the most useful metaphor for the artistic process. I mean, it, it, and and almost somewhat obsessively, I, I maybe like Unwin, I I tend to to edit and revise my dreams as I'm having them sometimes. Uh, but in in the book, I I really put dreams uh, central because uh, it it's I was wondering well what is the most what is the most precious commodity humans have what could these two forces be battling over uh, the agency on one side and uh, something called the travels no more carnival on the other and eventually it seemed that that dreams were were perhaps the natural battleground and spoils for for this war so as as the as the mystery is slowly revealed we 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 find that. A lot is going on in the unconscious part of the city. It's not just what's happening in the streets, but it's what's happening in people's minds as they're walking those streets. And this is meant to be taken literally in in a way because this is this is a, it's an adventure story. It's a it's meant to be strange. But on the other hand, of course, you know, dreams and and dreaming are are slippery things, and that. It was a lot of fun to have have them be uh, there to be to be contested and to kind of drive the characters to uh, extents that they might not go otherwise because they they are they are working in a, in a metaphysical realm. Now, one of the things I like about the way you describe the city is is 
has to do with this the the this uh, traveling travels no more carnival uh, because you capture I think one of the really interesting aspects of all cities and, and, and something that's important to the hard boiled detective genre in general, which is that transience change those who come and go hmm. are in fact a permanent part of any city that's well put uh, and the the problem as it's presented at the beginning of this book is that there is a stasis there's unwin stasis but the traveling carnival carnival has become say the, the traveling carnival has become the travels no more carnival and something has gone terribly wrong uh, there there's a there is a freeze on on the the evolution of of ideas and this the city itself has has reached a, a point of stagnation uh, and this is explored in the book by some of the characters who talk of it as a, as a kind of balance between uh, chaos and order or, or 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 movement and stasis and what you know what I hope to show though is that those those boundaries are more permeable than they than they seem at first the Agency and the travels no more carnival have more to do with one another uh, than than might seem. They have a kind of symbiotic relationship, and the the thing that has gone wrong here uh, has has really uh, damaged them both. Neither are actually playing the role that they're supposed to play, and this is why Unwin is promoted to being a detective. This is why things have 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 gone so terribly wrong and why his his own detective Travis Travis Savart has gone missing and so it's Unwin's uh goal a, a job rather that even though it's a job he doesn't want to upset this balance and and get things moving again and uh that's um a, a serious challenge for him I've been speaking with Jedediah Berry his first novel is The Manual of Detection thank you for speaking with me Jed thank you so much You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.